Welcome to your church. Uh, I'm Harold, and I'm honored to bring to you God's Word for this morning. If you have your Bibles, it'll also be projected overhead. This is a famous passage. It's uh, popularly known as the Great Commission, but I've entitled it, How to Make Disciples of Christ, verses 18 to 20, Matthew chapter 28. Okay, I'll read this for us. This is Jesus' final command in the Gospel of Matthew. And Jesus came and said to them, his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is God's word. Here at Christ Central, you know, our prayer and our deep growing desire for one more for the gospel is actually directly taken from these verses. It's Jesus' final command, one more for the gospel, which means bring one more friend to Christ and raise one more disciple for Christ. Notice how Jesus does not say, simply seek and win new converts to Christ. The one and only verb, the main point of this entire passage, all the other words are supporting participles, the one and only verb is go and make disciples, make disciples. So evangelism, introducing or bringing one friend to Christ, great, wonderful, supernatural work, but that's not enough, that's not what Jesus fully commands. Evangelism must lead into or turn into this organic, life-giving, life-transforming thing called discipleship. Make disciples. So that's our focus for this morning. And in fact, it's our focus for the next week or so with Pastor Jimmy Hahn and I alternating messages upon this grand theme. And I am excited that at this church, discipleship has been happening in some organic and formal Way, but we're going to make it much more systematized, intentional, public, and formal. And so you're going to hear about this back-to-back weeks. Now, before we just get into the seven elements of how Jesus made disciples, please do not skip the first verse. Jesus told his disciples before he says the one command, make disciples, here's what he said. All authority, okay, all All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, to Christ. All in him. So in our haste, in our hubris, in our rush to go on and just, let's go make disciples, you cannot bypass the affirmation, the delegation of authority that Jesus promises. Because I will assure you, once you put one step forward, into making disciples of all the earth through all of his churches, you will quickly find you'll be prone to discouragement, you'll be prone to defeat, and you might fall into a pit of despair. And the only way that we can go and dare and complete the Great Commission to go and make disciples is to actually experience and have certainty that the authority of the very Christ is upon us. And here's the only way that you and I can go forth with Christ's authority. 
You and I will only go forth with his authority if you and I, our lives have been submitted to and trusting and come under his authority ourselves. We will lack authority in Christ, which will in, in, inevitably lead to despair and defeat, especially in a hostile and indifferent world. People are prone not to believe or follow Christ as God. We will only go forth into that kind of world with his authority only when Christ has taken authority over you. So with that, programs and methods and tactics might change. The culture and the age has certainly changed since Jesus' day, but the biblical elements of how Jesus made disciples, and now he commands his church to do the same, we're just gonna try to learn today. I've got seven, and I'm gonna go quickly. Seven. Seven biblical elements of how Jesus made disciples. First, it takes identification. First, it takes identification. Jesus became fully human. He crossed the language barrier. He did not do God speak in some incredibly insane, brilliant language. He crossed the language barrier, but he actually sweat. He sweated with his disciples. He cried with his disciples. He ate with his disciples. He traveled. He walked. He got tired. He got stressed. He got fearful. He made himself totally accessible, approachable, vulnerable. He became human just like us. So the first step, the first principle of trying to make any disciples is the principle of identification. See, Jesus first came all the way down before people could ever reach up. Jesus went out. He did not just wait and hide. He was proactive. He was not passive. Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost. Jesus made himself identifiable, identification. This is why in the book of Hebrews, in a marvelous passage, which should be of great comfort to us, the author, which we're not quite sure of, here's what he wrote in verses 17 and 18 of Hebrews chapter two. Therefore, he had to be, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. You know, people respond to, people really do respond to, identification and real compassion and sympathy. The reason why people were drawn to and gave up their lives and followed Jesus was he identified himself with his people and they could figure out and sense somehow he became so human that I can go to him even in my struggles and weaknesses. You know, the Jewish historian by the name of Josephus, he guesses that there are about 20,000 priests working in the temple in Jesus' day. 20,000, 20,000. But Jesus came along and he calls them all out and says, a lot of them are hirelings, are hirelings. They're not really the good shepherd like me, they're hirelings. What is Jesus pointing at there? He says, there might be a lot of priests, might be a lot of leaders, might be a lot of pastors, might be a lot of ministers, might be a lot of lay servants at the church. Thank God for you. But Jesus sees all the way through the depths of our hearts. He says, but you know, hirelings, they're going to do it for some kind of payoff. 
Hirelings are going to come and go. Hirelings are going to do it for some kind of prestige or pride. You know, Pastor Tim Keller, he quickly observes, it's funny, people who go into the business of helping others so often need the most help for themselves. And here's what he means by that. When you're in the serving others business, a lot of times our personal issues is going to get in the way. I can't really serve and meet your needs if I have my own personal needs that I have to first meet. So for instance, if I feel good about myself, I feel like I'm worthy, I feel like I'm significant, I feel like I have a title, I feel like I'm doing something good by helping you, at the end of the day, Tim Keller is saying you're not really serving any, anybody else, you're still serving yourself. And I'll tell you, there's a mixed bag here. Oh, starting with myself. And it's called personal baggage of needs. But when Jesus came down, he not only so identified himself with the people, he could genuinely give himself away as the good shepherd, weeping over Jerusalem and eventually giving up his very life. My friends, our discipleship, which we're going to define what is that, but the first step that Jesus has to do and show us For you to have a disciple formed and follow you, it always begins with identification and true compassion from the heart. Here's a second. Here's a second. Let's call it selection. Selection. Identification, selection. Please don't overlook the fact that crowds and crowds and masses of people surrounded Jesus. He was like a rock star in his day because he performed miracles. But then you turn around and discover this. He carefully, prayerfully chose disciples. Out of hundreds and hundreds and thousands of people, he selected 12 disciples. Now, why would he do that? Why wouldn't he just pay equal attention to everybody the same? But why would he select? Well, because Jesus knew this. In order to reach the whole wide world, he would have to go really, really deep. In order to accomplish the Great Commission, go therefore and make disciples of who? Oh, just all the nations. All the way to the ends of the earth, to the end of the age, that's his mission. But Jesus knew the only way he can go worldwide was to go supernaturally deep. Greater impact in depth and in selection than to just go wide. This was actually Jesus' strategy to reach the whole world. And it continues today. Discipleship starts with identification. And then Jesus shows his selection. Selection. Now here's how his first two disciples came. He came to John the Baptist, who had attracted a crowd, and he was ministering, he was baptizing people. And remarkably, John chapter 1 tells us that Jesus walked away. So he wasn't just into popular masses. He wasn't into like polling numbers. He started to walk away. And then two men by the name of Andrew and John, I got to make that right, Andrew and John go after him and they pursue him. Before Jesus ever taught a sermon or worked a miracle, Jesus was pursued, he was followed, and all Jesus had to turn around was to select men who already want to follow him. So here's what a disciple is. A disciple is someone who's a student. A disciple is someone who wants to learn. 
A disciple is ready to pursue. A disciple is eminently teachable. A disciple is eminently teachable, and those are the very men that Jesus selects. Now, I figured out pretty quick, as I do a lot of teaching or preaching, here's one thing that I could never do. I cannot teach teachability. I can't give you the right number of lessons for learnability. I can't force for people to become followers of Christ or me. But here's what I can do. I can certainly see and identify and select people who do want to do that. So can you. Instead of trying to knock on that closed door where a person is indifferent, hasn't reached the season of life yet where they realize I don't know everything I've got to learn I need, a follow, I need a mentor. Instead of just knocking, trying to kick down that door, just turn around and you can easily identify and select people who are eminently teachable. They just want to learn. They're like a sponge. And I believe this is exactly what Jesus did. Now, so let me diffuse some of the tension here. Oh, well, only the discipler gets to select who he wants. Only the older person gets to know uh, who is worthy to follow them. No, no, no. The selection process goes both ways. There are a lot of people at our church who are eminently teachable and learnable and want to be disciples, but they just don't want it from me. That's fine. That is why God gives a diversity of experiences and personalities and accessibility and gifts of the diversity of his church. And in his church, everyone can find someone that they can be discipled by and turn around and disciple. But Jesus was selective. And why did he choose 12? And even out of 12, why did he choose actually three? And among his disciples, just like today, there was all kinds of insecurity and rivalries and jealousies and bitterness because why is he only choosing those three? Let me guess why Jesus chose the 12 and why he chose the three. It's not because of great pedigree. It's not because of great talent. It's not because of great smarts. It's not because of great morals. It's not because of great resolve. I assure you, Jesus chose them because they were greatly teachable. Greatly humble. It's almost like, huh, I don't know better, so I better learn. This is how Jesus made disciples. First is identification. Second, selection. That goes both ways. Here's third. And it goes hand in hand with selectivity. Intimacy, intimacy. Jesus spent most of his time. Just consider that. What is Jesus' mission? Just reach and save the whole world. You and I would freak out. And every time we try to do that, we burn out. But for Jesus, it literally has been, just go down there and do something to save the whole world. Wouldn't you think your schedule would be frenetic? Could you sleep? Could you ever take a Sabbath or rest? Here's what Jesus did. He spent most of his time to accomplish that mission with the 12 disciples. So he drilled deep rather than just go thinly wide. He developed intimacy, intimacy. You know, the book of, Deut book of Deuteronomy, it says repeatedly that the best center or home or place in which 
people learn about spiritual life and grow into disciples of Jesus Christ or is, it's the family. It's the family, and here's why. You see, in the family, you're forced to spend a lot of time together. In the family, you see each other in all kinds of settings. When you're in good mood or bad mood, when you're hungry or full, when you're up or down. In the family, you spend a lot of time together. You're forced to. And a lot of those seemingly mundane, routine, unimportant, informal times, that is the soil from which can lead to formal, life-changing, profound, powerful times. Now, here's what Jesus models. Jesus had no physical, biological family. So I'm not saying you have to have a family to do this. Here's what Jesus models. All of his discipleship was done in a family style. If you want discipleship to be done like Jesus, it goes well beyond lessons. It goes well beyond formal gatherings. He did a family style of discipleship where values are just passed down. Where values are almost kind of breathed in. And what he did in his days, he took the 12 disciples and he had a three-year-long retreat. He walked and talked and lived and slept with them. And this is how his disciples were drilled down deep and discipled. And they, in turn, turned around and discipled and changed the world. Robert Coleman, he's the author of at least two books. I'm taking much of the sermon exactly from his books. He authored The Master Plan of Evangelism. Then he came around because evangelism is not enough. He came around and wrote another book entitled The Master Plan of Discipleship. Former professor at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. And here's what he shares about what he did for 30 years. 30 years straight. He said, the most important legacy I leave behind was not that I was a great professor, which he was, at a seminary. It's that for 30 years straight, I had a small group which was limited to 12 students. And he constantly met with 12 students 30 years straight. And Robert Coleman says, to me, probably for the kingdom of God and down into eternity, that may be the greatest impact that I ever leave behind. See, it's intimacy. Intimacy, real closeness. Not just that you have similar interests. Not that you just go to the same church. Not that you may even work together. But like family, you really know each other. That's when you're entering into discipleship. Let me put it this way. How do you really know me? A lot of you may say, oh, I don't, not at all. I've never gotten a chance. Likewise, how would I really know you? I'll give you a simple key. Beyond job references, beyond your resume, beyond even spending a week straight with you, here would be a better way. You would really get to know me better if all you did was check out who I'm most intimate with. I would get to know you really, really well, real quick, if I knew who, who are you most regularly consistent and most intimate with. Because for better or for worse, who you are most regularly intimate with, the scriptures promise is gonna rub off on you to be more godly or less godly. And if there's no identifiable people in your life, there's regular, consistent, godly intimates in your life, you're probably running from being identified or discipled or godly and so on and so forth. But you can tell who a person is really like when you get to know 
Who is that person who he or she most intimate with? Because there's no way around it. More than a past professor, more than a past pastor, more than a dead author that I read, or more than even a minister I may look up to today, the people who are consistent and regularly, starting with my wife, my best friend, and the intimates in my life have more profound influence on me than anything else. So it is the case with you. And this is why Jesus concentrated upon it, for intimacy, real depth, beyond the fun, identification, selection, intimacy. Here's the fourth. Here's the fourth. Demonstration. Demonstration. Jesus showed his disciples how to love, how to minister to those who are poor and hurting. He demonstrated his devotion to the word and prayer. And here's what Jesus did much better than me or anybody else who ever existed. Jesus was not just the best teacher. He was the best example. You heard that saying? Better caught than taught. Oh, that's sobering for all of us, biological and spiritual parents. Better caught than taught. So here's what Jesus did so well. He didn't just teach his people, you better be devoted to the word of God in prayer. He showed and demonstrated that he himself was. And here's a verse that we would often overlook. It happens at the end of the Great Commission. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded, who? Notice how Jesus phrases that. You want to teach people the supportive participle under making disciples, baptizing them and teaching them, but you want to teach them how. Notice how Jesus said it. Teaching them to do what? To observe, watch. Watch what God has commanded you. So here's clearly what Jesus is saying. You have to show that you obey before your disciples learn to obey. You have to show that you've come under authority, that you're submissive, before your disciples become submissive under authority. You see, if you really want your disciples to listen and learn and be committed and responsive and humble, here's the hard part. They're looking at you if you do it first. If you want your disciples to be studious and excellent and energetic and sacrificial, all of those good features, sorry, they're going to look at me first if I'm doing that. Are you courageous? Don't just tell them to be courageous. Are you courageous? Are you wise? Do you have good judgment? Or do you have maturity? Then in turn, as we teach others to observe what I am doing, that's how people best learn. Better caught than taught. That's why Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1 says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. You know, at home, I have at least four little eyes looking at everything that I do. And then I've got another set of eyes, which are much larger, much more scary, and hawk-like, and they're almost divine set of eyes. I've got six set of eyes at home, and they see. Oh, they see. They're here today. I don't know why they showed up today. This is scary. They see what Daddy Pastor Harold does on stage on a Sunday, but they're going to be probably more influenced by what they see at home. Demonstration. 
demonstration. You guys remember Matthew McConaughey's crazy kind of unforgettable speech when he won Best Actor for the Oscars? Let me butcher it. Let me translate what he said. Everyone has to have someone you look up to. Everyone has to have friends or peers you can lean on. And then everyone else has to have followers that you can lead. Do you? My friend, you can't lead anyone if you're not being led. You won't last if you don't have friends you can lean on. I had a dear, dear friend who was so unprovoked and unsurprising just this last week. He wrote to me, Harold, when it gets overwhelming or tough or whatever it is, please lean into your friends. Thank you, dear friend. Made its way into the sermon. But this is demonstration, demonstration. Oh, we go on. Identification, selection, intimacy, demonstration. Here's number five. Delegation. Delegation. Jesus gave his disciples something to do. They're learning on the job. It's a real life education. The best kind of learning. At first, they were simply students. Listen, learn, take notes. Then Jesus turned around and said, okay, now I want you to go up there and teach that. At first, they just watched Jesus cast out demons. Then one day he says, I'm gonna send you out, give you my authority, you cast out demons. They just watched him heal, heal, Morning till night. Now I'm going to send you out two by two. And you go and you heal in my name. Delegation. They got more involved. And Jesus assigns them tasks. People ask, well, Harold, how do you get better at teaching or preaching or whatever, public speaking? And I wish I could give you a better answer. There's no other way around it than just you got to do it more. You gotta overcome all the fears, all the nerves, all the insecurities, all the sleepless nights, and all the things that go into it. You just gotta, you gotta pray your face off. How do I counsel better? How do I counsel people who are really hurting better? You gotta counsel more, you gotta do it. How do I manage crises? How do I respond to people who may hurt you? How do I respond to people who may just not believe? You gotta do it. How do I do this or that? Jesus taught his disciples, here's how, Ultimately, the learning curve, you're going to hit the ceiling, and he says, okay, time for you to do it. And I found out there's a seminary in Indonesia, which in my delusional state back when I was young, said, oh, I'm going to go to a seminary like that. Thought I was qualified to enter that seminary. You know what their graduation requirement is? I don't know if it still exists. I don't know if they still have this policy. No seminary graduate in Indonesia can Come out of that school unless you have first evangelized to enough people that you can plant a church. So after you sit in classrooms for about three to four years, they say, okay, you want to graduate? Now you go out there <laughs> and actually talk to people about the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're going to have to get some results or returns, enough so, or potential results, that you're going to plant a church, and then you're going to be a graduate of this school. Wow. Here's what Jesus did with his disciples. One day he said, it's gonna be better when I go away because I've discipled you so much and I'm gonna give you everything you need and then some that after I go away, my disciples are gonna do greater works than these. Do you know he says that in John chapter 14? Jesus says, you're gonna do greater works than him, not qualitatively, but I'm talking about geography, expansion, sheer numbers, and reaching the whole world. 
How dare Jesus claim and promise he's going to do something like that? Well, he believes in his own discipleship and what he left behind. You know, this morning, not coincidentally, Joni Erickson Dada, who as a teenager dove into Chesapeake Bay, right there by Maryland, got paralyzed, and now she's in a wheelchair for the rest of her life. This morning she shared how a dear friend of hers by the name of Liz wrote her a poem. I just want to read the last two sentences of the poem that was made to Joni Tata. Here's what she wrote. My friend, can you tell me how you can trust the Lord? How can you stay so gentle and sweet when he seems to wield a sword? You are to me a promise that even in the midst of pain, God is near and faithful if I will turn to him again. People are always watching, especially if you're in leadership. They're always noticing and they're always being influenced for good or for bad, and especially your kids at home. And this task of demonstration, which passes into delegation, Joni Erickson Tata says, look, people are going to watch you the closest, not when it's routine and mundane, but when you're at your peak and in your valleys, when you're sky high or in a pit of despair. And may people wonder, how can it be that you'd be so humble and sweet when God seems to be wielding a sword? Demonstration, delegation, Oh, here's the sixth. I'm sorry, seventh. Yeah, aren't we at the seventh? No, six, six. Got to look at the slide myself. Six, accountability. Accountability. Let's not overlook this last principle. I hate to admit it. The New England Patriots are dang good. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Why are they good year after year after year? And my team so bad year after year after year. Why? Just, just read the report. Just read the reports. There's a guy by the name of Devilcheck. I'm sorry, Belichick. <laughs> Bill Belichick, the coach, who has no issue not only micromanaging everything, but just correcting every single little thing. And they do drills about like things that you would never conceive could even happen. But he corrects and he corrects and he corrects on the spot. And he doesn't let anyone get away with it. And I, I think it's brutal. I think it's not nice. So definitely you shouldn't run a church like that. But in his football organization, that's why they're so dang good. You cannot overlook accountability. I mess up. You mess up. When we mess up, we may not know we messed up. And so for your growth and for the kingdom and for me and you, there has to be in any kind of discipleship, someone you've trusted, someone you're following, where the person comes and speaks truth and love, reproves and corrects and makes sure that this will not be a persistent problem. Here's what Jesus did with his disciples. He had no problem calling them out theologically, morally, financially, sexually, judgment, wisdom, you name it. Every aspect of their life. That was part of what discipleship with Jesus meant. And the temptation will be that you spend less and less time with your disciples. And the temptation would be that it's more comfortable to not be so accountable or corrective with maybe the people you spend the most time with. But 
That's the temptation we must overcome because Jesus never let go of accountability with his disciples. You know, the temptation is, you know, pastor or, or you or anybody else, yeah, I'd really like it if our church was um, where you would spend equal time with everybody. And you'd be accessible, knowable, and personal with everybody. Believe me, I would really like that too. But there's this thing called like size and scope and scale, like churches, so small churches, maybe about up to about 120, 150 people. Medium-sized churches, like 200 to 400 people. We're right in the middle of what we call a large church, a large church, four to 800 people. And these are objective studies and analyses where people's feelings do get hurt. We have missed expectations, false assumptions about the fact, well, why doesn't this one person spend equal time with everybody? Well, first I'll tell you, not only is that physically, humanly impossible, that's actually not strategic, it's not wise. That's not what Jesus did with his disciples. But here's what I'm saying. Whether you go to a small church, medium, or large church, please don't carry the expectations you had a small church into a large church. Please don't go back from a large church into a small church and then condemn the small church for not being like your large church. No, size does make a difference everywhere. But here's why I'm talking about even church sizes and and missed expectations. Here's what Jesus did. Jesus concentrated and spent and invested deeper into his disciples because he knew at the end of the day The deeper you go, the wider the impact for the gospel. No matter what size of church you go to. Accountability, accountability. I was trying to um, carefully choose to select of all the times I have been corrected and held accountable. We don't have hours here. So I mentioned the first one that was unforgettable. I was 21, second semester senior at Cal, serving at a church at a college group that was blown up over there. I entered the staff. The pastor was very gracious. This is after my dad had died within a year, year and a half. I thought I was going to go to seminary. So I, quote unquote, was a pastor in training. Then we were having a leader, leaders meeting, about 20, 30 people assembled in this small apartment. And his name is Pastor David. He was dealing with some serious issue. And I cannot recall even how serious that issue was. It's still my fault. He was talking about a serious issue. And me and my group of friends back here in the corner were just goofing off. Goofing off. One guy was passing gas. Way too much gas. It's hard to not react. We were giggling, saying gross, stop it, da da da. And the pastor in front of the group of 30 called me out, one of the most gentlest of men, raised his voice, and I could tell this was CERN. And not only were we talking about a serious issue, I was like, okay, this guy's getting serious with me. And here's, in effect, what he said, which I'll never forget. He said, Harold, now that you've joined staff, it's going to be hard, but you can't just be a friend. You need to be a pastor. Boom. He went on so far as to say, you should be the one making sure they're all paying attention, having a seriousness of attitude to the seriousness of the issue. And he took me aside after and said, Harold, I actually wanted you to be the one to lead prayer, but you were far from it. Accountability. Accountability. How would I have ever known at that young age that when you become a pastor, people don't just need you to be a friend? Seventh, reproduction. Seventh is reproduction. John chapter 15, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. 
If anyone abides in me, stick to Jesus, go deep with him, stay faithful to him, need him for your life, you're gonna bear fruit. Fruit's gonna come out of you and fruit's gonna be born in you. Reproduction. And one of the greatest fulfillments, which none of us deserve on this side of heaven, is to see that simply if you're faithful to Jesus, by you teaching and helping a little kid understand the gospel, or by you hanging out with that friend, that long lost friend who has all kinds of questions and cynicism against the faith, or someone who needs to recover back in the faith, by these little things that we do, Jesus somehow, as the vine, provides all the reproductive nutrients and life and miracles that someone else's life could be born again or be healed. Yeah, I mentioned a good friend of ours, Reverend Joel Kim, got inaugurated as president of Westminster Seminary two weeks ago. After that service ended, I happened to be sitting behind a man by the name of James Lee. He's Pastor James Lee. He's been working about two decades down at New Life Church of La Jolla. I revere this man, but I'd never been able to tell him what influence God had used him for back in college. So I thought this was an opportune moment. He stood up, we greeted each other, said, Pastor James, I should have told you earlier, but back when I was a junior or senior in college, I went to this on-campus Bible study and you preached. And you preached a message that made my heart feel like I was born again again. It started to lift me up out of all of my self-analysis, self-condemnation, workspace type of Christian life. And it refreshed and set me free because I think it was one of the first times I heard a sermon that made my heart leap and rest upon the sufficiency and the perfection and the saving power of Jesus Christ, not myself. I told him this. His eyes just started to well with tears. He could not help himself. And I said, that sermon affected me so much, I came back the next week. I could not get enough. And I started to read books into the category of the type of sermon that you were doing. It's called Reformed Preaching. I said, Pastor James, the two or three sermons I heard from you literally cured my spiritual depression. And my friend, Pastor Owen Lee, and I on the spot said, wherever that guy went to seminary, that's where we're going. No-brainer, and that's why we ended up at Westminster Seminary. The tears on his face and the look in his eye and the fact that he had no words to say told me. What a thrill, what fulfillment that the Lord of the harvest can use anything and bring about fruit of reproduction. Oh, it's one of the greatest moments of my life that this coming Easter, someone has been born again and she's gonna profess Christ. One of the greatest thrills of my life is to hear other people back in the past. I don't remember what happened, but they became missionaries or pastors or rededicate their life. Jesus even gives us a taste of that kind of joy and rewards. Here's a conclusion. How to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Oh, we went through nice seven neat principles. But here's a conclusion. All of it is in vain. All of it is impossible apart from this. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you notice how Jesus said at the end, and I, behold, behold, not only do I give you all authority up front, but as long as you are committed to making disciples of all nations, behold, I am with you all the way to the end of the age. That's through the power of the Holy Spirit. You and I can try our darndest to make disciples 
and you will, but you're only gonna make disciples of a human kind. Only the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ is gonna make disciples of Christ. Because it's the Holy Spirit who incarnates, who identifies. It is only by the power of the Holy Spirit that he comes down and selects and gives us discernment. The Holy Spirit draws us into intimacy. The Holy Spirit moves us to obey and enables us to demonstrate any godly thing. The Holy Spirit delegates, gives us his gifts. The Holy Spirit holds me accountable by bothering my conscience or speaking through the counsel and confirmation of community. The Holy Spirit replenishes, reproves, and corrects, holds me accountable. And last but not least, the Holy Spirit brings forth reproduction. All by the power of the Holy Spirit. One more for the gospel. Only possible by the power of the Holy Spirit. To the end of the age, go therefore and make disciples. Listen, if you're losing heart, people aren't following, or you're not leading, or you feel like you don't have friends you could lean on, or you're going through a season that seems so dry and bleak, I have been there with you, my friend, for years. Can I ask you as we close, can you please look up more? Can you look forward more? Can you look outward more? Because what Jesus promised and commanded here is guaranteed to succeed. It's guaranteed. Keep looking at this vision. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its soul seals. Revelation chapter five, verse nine. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. The song that you and I are gonna get to sing because of the miracle of reproduction throughout all the nations and tongues and tribes of the earth, all by the power of the Spirit who is with us to the end of the age. Therefore, let's go make disciples. Let's pray.